Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies is... James Hunt. Yep, so it's just actually me and James today. Seb found out he was going to be busy late in the day, so we haven't got a guest, it's just the two of us. I think the first time ever on this podcast that (laughs) just two of us have attempted to ramble on for more than two hours about a movie. In a slight change to the normal format, we will not be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news. I'll get to that in a minute. But then we will launch into our spoiler-filled discussion of this week, Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. That's it, we're back on the MCU. But before any of that, I'm going to ask James to explain a comic book concept that's a movie fan I just don't understand. And this week, the concept that I want you to explain to me is Jeff Johns. <laughs> What's a Jeff Johns and how has he got to the position where he is such a big deal in not only comics, but now kind of taking on what seems to be the Kevin Feige kind of role, in, or maybe even more than that, with the DCEU. Well, I don't think he's the Kevin Feige, really. I think he's the more the Joker Sada. Like, okay. he is a, he's a kind of... He's a comics writer who basically rose up through DC's sort of editorial to become a kind of, like, creative advisor... So he still writes comics, doesn't he? But he's kind of doing... Yeah, he like he does other stuff. Like he, I'm pretty sure he did a draft of the Wonder Woman scripts. Well, so that's that's the reason this question's come up, because okay. after um, a, a long time with different names attached to this movie, this week DC announced that, in fact, the final tri- the, or the script's two credited screenwriters are going to be Jeff Johns and Alan Heinberg who apparently had collaborated on Wonder Woman comics in the yeah, past. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a good team, to be honest. Like, Alan Heinberg wrote some really good uh, Young Avengers comics for Marvel. That's why I say is Jeff Johns actually maybe in a more influential position over at DC, in that he's writing the screenplays as well as kind of taking this overarching kind of face of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think he is. If nothing else, I think Kevin Feige's been quite keen to keep the comics people out of the movies, hasn't he? to the extent of disbanding the creative committee or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, essentially he's like their resident nerd, I guess. He's the guy who came up through the comics and loves the comics and sits on the movie saying, oh, Batman wouldn't do that. And do you think that's probably something that the DC movies need after Man of Steel and Batman (laughs) v Superman? Well, yeah. 
I mean, I'm I'm not really sure why he rose up specifically. Like, I mean, I haven't read a huge amount of Jeff Johns. Like, what I have read will be stuff that Seb recommended to me. And right. aside from that, he wrote Avengers sort of probably 15 years ago for a very brief period. Um, and I read some of it then and wasn't hugely impressed. But, I mean, that was a long time ago. Uh, I think probably he's just one of those guys who's been hanging around doing work that sells and that people like. Uh, I know he had a big Green Lantern sort of period that was, yeah, hugely popular. So I think it's pretty much just that, like, his popularity qualified him to be put in ever more prominent positions. I'm wondering if there is any any kind of parallel to him in as far as movies goes, because you're right that Marvel have kind of mostly kept the comics writers away from the the actual kind of nitty gritty of the films. Do you think there's do you think there's a danger that DC now goes the other way and makes things a little bit too comic booky, a little bit too much, you know, quotes for the fans and not for general audiences? Doesn't isn't aware of the kind of tweaks that they need to make to tr- make a character <clears throat> more relatable to your average Joe than just the your, your person who already knows that character from the page. I kind of feel like the it's not mu- like mutually exclusive to be true to the character and appeal to the fans and accessible to the public because I think that's what Marvel has pretty much nailed. Mm. Like you come out of Marvel films going. Not only is that a good version of Thor, that's a better version of Thor that's on the page, for example. Mm. And that kind of crystallizes the character and then feeds back into the comics, like especially with Iron Man. Like the the movie version of Iron Man pretty much realized everything that the comics version had failed to for decades probably. And mm. now now you can't read a comic without having like movie Iron Man in your head. I think they might have done the same thing for Loki as well, right? Well, yeah. Almost certainly. I can't. I can't pick up a comic where Loki doesn't look exactly like Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> right, you should. Yeah, you should read the comics from before the film and see what Loki was like then, because it was a very different proposition. But yeah, I think I don't think DC are necessarily going to do that. I think they're going to keep appealing to what they see as. I don't want to say teenage boy fan base, but that's how it comes across to me. <laughs> like you know, people of any age and gender can be teenage boys. You mean you mean fanboys, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not to say it's bad. Like that's just my opinion of of DC's movie aesthetic is not particularly great. Well, I I I think it's probably set to change. I I have to say I think this could be interesting if DC continues to do what they say they want to do, which is to hire filmmakers with, you know, the, the the kind of implication that Marvel just hires any old bloke that they can kowtow into following these, the Marvel template and, you know, bashing out the films that are, that are more Kevin Feige films than they are, I don't know, Peyton Reed or Russo Brothers movies, however much you agree with that or not. But DC say they're hiring specific filmmakers who make specific type of films to go out there and and have these movies be a filmmaker's vision then maybe if you have got a strong filmmaker with an identity like that and get them to work with screenwriters like Jeff Johns who know the characters inside out and work, have worked on the comics then maybe you can get the best of both worlds in that regard you get you get characters that are more true to who those characters are on the page, but you also have a fresh set of eyes who can add all of the new fun stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, my problem with that analysis is that I don't believe DC are doing that. I think they're just saying they're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, And, you know, it, to be fair, Marvel don't 
have a particularly strong hand in the opposite direction. Like they, you know, they obviously have their sort of myth arc or whatever that they impose on filmmakers to a point. And there's obviously some kind of mandate that no Marvel film now is a solo Marvel film, like the Royal Ensembles and Avengers will be turning up everywhere. Mm. But at the same time, when they let the filmmakers loose on the rest of it, they get a very individual film like Guardians and Captain America 3 and nothing alike. So I think... Like, it's a nice soundbite to say Marvel does this and DC does this, but I think really they're both doing the same thing and they're just sort of... Going about it in different ways. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, the two, like, those Zack Snyder films were definitely Zack Snyder films. Mm Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how different Suicide Squad is and, you know, Wonder Woman and Aquaman. And once we've seen a few more, we'll be able to gauge how how much they're actually letting filmmakers have their, their own say. Yeah, well, not long till Suicide Squad now, James. Only about a month, so yep. we'll be we'll be able to do that on the podcast before very long. <laughs> but I said earlier on the podcast that we um, were not going to be doing any of the usual news this week, and this is for a number of reasons, and is in fact going to be the case for at least the next three or four podcasts, um, and then we will kind of reassess and decide what we're going to do after that. First of all, there was there was not a lot of news this week, uh, as you might have heard on the last minisode. One of the biggest pieces of news was that Jeff Johns had written that Wonder Woman uh, script. And we've kind of been wondering for a while whether we should be doing news on the main episodes. Anyway, given how long these episodes run and whether it would be a more kind of compact offering just to have... Uh, the explaining thing at the start, the pitch at the end, and the movie in the middle. We would love to hear your feedback on that, whether you would like us to keep doing the news on the main episodes, or whether you um, enjoy it without and are happy for us to continue like this. Um, For the next couple of weeks, at least, we will, or the next couple of episodes, we will not be doing any news. I am getting married next month. Um, and then going um, on honeymoon for three weeks after that. So I'm going to be away for a while. Uh, The podcast isn't going away. We're going to try and pre-record some episodes, but obviously when you pre-record, news is not timely (laughs) anyway. So that kind of ruled out doing the news on all of those podcasts. So for the time being, at least, no news on the main podcasts. It will still be on the minisodes. Um, uh, So, I mean, if you're not listening to the minisodes, well, you play! at they're great it's just me talking to myself for half an hour um i feel like mark Marin. it's fantastic but less angry less angry and less mustachey but yeah so let us know if you miss the news um or if you prefer it like this and we will kind of reassess once i come back a a, a married man and um we'll decide what we're doing from there on in um but that does mean this week that's the housekeeping out of the way this week we are going to move straight on into our spoiler-filled discussion of Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. And we'll take a listen to the trailer now. So, we found it. Jane, I think you want to see this. Threatened me, Thor was so puny. What? He was freaking me out. Where did he come from? Name? He said it was 
door. Crazy homeless person, he's pretty cut. How'd you get inside that cloud? Also, how could you eat an entire box of Pop-Tarts and still be this hungry? This drink, I like it. Another! This is going on Facebook, smile. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same. But who are you, really? You'll see soon enough. God, I hope you're not crazy. Will you swear to guard the lives of the innocent and preserve the peace? I swear. I will destroy their kind. You can't kill an entire race and die with them. These people are innocent. I have no plans to die today. Okay, so that was the trailer for Thor, um, which is the, what, the fourth film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, James? Am I counting correctly there? Two Iron Mans, an Incredible Hulk, and then we got Thor. Yeah, yeah. They're very close together, Iron Man 2 and Thor, weren't they? Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I seem to remember there was, I think, the, that was no, the first Sorry, two... yeah, it was Hulk and Iron Man, that were, Iron Man 2 that were close together, wasn't it? No, it was Hulk and Iron Man came out, I think, close together in 2008. Then there was a little bit of a gap, and then Iron Man. And then I believe... Uh, and then Iron Man 2. And then I believe, like, Thor was the start of one summer, and Captain America was the end of right, the summer. Right, yeah. And then Avengers came out the next year. Yeah, I remember now. But I think this turns up at a really interesting point in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we'd had Iron Man and we'd had Hulk, and obviously Hulk wasn't the success they hoped it had been, and we'd had two Iron Man films, and even though the second Iron Man film, people were kind of clocking on to the fact that it was setting up the Avengers, it wasn't received quite as well. Iron Man was still a hugely popular, proven property. But he was the only hugely popular proven property. And we are a year out from the Avengers turning up. So this year we have to do Thor and we have to do Captain America <laughs> before we before Marvel are selling to us this massive crossover event predicated on, look at all these characters you like teaming up, one of which you didn't like that much and the other one, that's fine. <laughs> Um, and then Thor comes along, and Thor has to be this film that introduces another hero that you're a fan of, does the whole connecting to the rest of the franchise kind of stuff, um, which Hulk never, Hulk and Iron Man hadn't crossed over that much previous to this. It has to open up the whole universe. It has to sell you on the fact that this isn't just a, um, you know, one guy who took a serum and another guy who built himself a suit, which is all based in science. This is kind of more myths and magic and gods and other worlds and space. And that's all going to be important because that's going to be key to the Avengers. In fact, 
the villain of this is going to be the villain of the Avengers. And I think it just had a really, really tough job on its hands. And ultimately, while I don't think it's going to end up being in anyone's kind of top four or five Marvel movies, I think it does the job it needed to do pretty impeccably. I don't know whether you would agree with that. Yeah, I remember being very sceptical of Thor, thinking just like, I don't see how this is going to work. And I remember thinking they'll probably do the magic as advanced science, you know, sort of work around. Which they kind of reference. They kind of they kind of say, oh, magic is just, you know, science <laughs> that we don't understand yet. <laughs> and then after that, it's just magic. Yeah, but it, it doesn't it doesn't ease you into the facts of, oh, no, this is just an extension of stuff that you don't get yet. It just throws you in to the deep end with Asgard and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, actually, I remember when I, saw, when I saw the movie sitting there and like that first sort of five minute monologue of this is Asgard and the nine words, Odin sort of talking about it and just sitting there thinking like, oh God, this is bad. It's going to be bad. But then once they'd got all that set up out of the way, they were just like, okay, move forward with the story. It's interesting. I think a good comparison um, would be Green Lantern. Um, And I remember I reviewed Green Lantern for um, Empire in the DVD section. And like my, my opening gambit on that review was... You know, there was there's no excuse for the failure that Green Lantern had. You know, you can talk about oh, it's power rings and it's a, it's a suit that's CG and it's these different people who guard different sectors of the universe. And here's this villain who's a cloud. And oh, how are you ever going to make that work? And I go, well, you know, Kenneth Branagh six months beforehand convinced us that a god with a hammer, a Nordic god with a hammer, you know, uh, who effectively did magic and then came down to our world. And he did all that. He explained just as much complicated stuff as Green Lantern did. But it works for some reason in Thor. You buy into it. Um, And the fact that I I think... The fact that by the end of this film, you're not kind of... It's not jarring to see them hopping between Earth and Asgard. Um, And I think a lot of that is in some clever production design. And um, some really good kind of costume work. um, And and really, a really, really well acted movie, I think. And I think a lot of that Mm -hmm. might stem from the director they chose. But yet the film doesn't... It never stretches believability in, in a superhero... You know, in, in the in the superhero sphere, anyway, and that's impressive because we hadn't really had superheroes like Thor before. I mean, they kind of they don't play Thor as a superhero, do they? Like they play it more as he is a fantasy warrior. Like mm. it's a bit sort of Beastmaster-ish. Like it it feels more like Beastmaster or Conan or that sort of movie i'm just trying to think there must be one of those movies where some like medieval type warrior comes to earth he-man he He-Man, comes to i guess yeah. but that was really bad yes well that's that's what that's what i'm thinking is that you know in the master universe film that's a really bad example of doing a thing <laughs> that this film does so again it's just another one of those it's kind of it's kind of impressive that it works as well as it does here yeah but i mean i think that it's it's lineage is more that sort of movie than superheroes in any direct way hmm but yet has to tie into all of that other stuff and we have yeah. to have Agent Coulson and all that. Um, 
I think this is going to be one of those, which I think we've probably done with all the Marvel Cinematic Universe ones, one of those episodes where we go through things chronologically. And when we do that, the best place to start is always the start. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought it was interesting um, that this movie starts with that little flash-forward technique. Uh, so the opening sequence is... Natalie Portman, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, your favourite Kat Dennings, all down <laughs> on Earth together, uh, kind of investigating this. The, so we get a sense that they've been studying the stars. They've been studying these kind of irregular activities down in New Mexico. And we see Thor come to Earth for the first time. And Kenneth Branagh had said that that was always something he wanted to do if he was going to tell this story. He wanted to start it on Earth. He thought it would be a mistake to dead cut into Asgard, Um, which, funnily enough, is the exact opposite of what Green Lantern does. Green Lantern starts with the big monologue uh, out explaining the different sects of the universe and parallax and what his deal is and what this thing is and what that uh, whereas this you get that that small grounding element first before we get the lord of the rings style here is some past battles and here is this and here is that and now let's go to present day asgard and i think it works i think it gives you a little real world foothold i don't think it fails on any level like i don't think it's the only way they could have done it no it's not particularly interesting but i think it might be necessary yeah i mean i guess their thing was to use like jane foster as the audience stand in Mm -hmm. sort of encountering thor for the first time and being sort of taken with this kind of strange protagonist I, i kind of i kind of think that's a little bit lazy as an idea but at the same time, they executed it well enough that it doesn't really matter. That's how it comes across. But I don't really get the sense that Jane Foster is kind of the the centre of the movie in any other way. Like, after that point, it's all about Thor. So it's kind of... Like, I, I don't know if it links thematically to the rest of the movie in, in the way they've done it. I don't know. When it's down on Earth, I do... I do certainly feel that when Thor comes down to Earth and when he spends time in New Mexico... Uh, it is mostly through the other character's eyes. Like, he feels like the protagonist up in Asgard, and then I feel like when he comes down to Earth, at least until the sequence where he goes to retrieve the hammer, it really does feel like... um, Yeah, that's, like, for the middle act then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Why I also found this interesting, I was trying. I was thinking back, um, and someone pointed out to me on Twitter the the, f- the flaw in this theory. Um, it was Mark Harrison on Twitter. He pointed out the flaw in this particular theory. I was trying to think back and wondering whether every Marvel movie outside of the Avengers has one of these little flashback, flash forward sequences to open the movie on. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know the two Avengers movies don't. And uh, yeah, Mark pointed out to me that the Winter Soldier doesn't. Um, but that's the only other one. And in fact, so if you kind of look at all the origin movies and especially throughout phase one, so you've got the kind of the flashback flash forward stuff with Tony Stark all the way through the first act of Iron Man. Um, in Hulk, the opening sequence is the origin story told over the opening credits. Um, in Thor, we have this, um, in Captain America, even we get the, them finding him in the ice in the present day before we flash back. Um, Guardians has young Peter Quill looking at his mum and I just I mean you you, you can go through all the movies apart from um, as I say the Avengers movies and Winter Soldier and there's something like that in there Um, 
And I'm trying to work out whether it is a little crutch, whether it's a nice little easy way to open a movie <laughs> with this kind of like little, uh, just little throw you off kind of sequence, give you a little bit of history, maybe um, establish some themes that you're going to be coming back to later in the movie. Um, I mean, or, or whether it's or whether it is something that they've intentionally tried to do, which is to expand the universe somewhere. I was going to say, I think it it does serve the purpose of expanding the universe but also i think we've said before how marvel's films are all very structurally similar like the mm. i forget the name but there's that book that is kind of like the handbook for modern blockbuster screenwriting and marvel just like takes the structure they all have like the kind of second act dip and then the triumphant third act and mm. you kind of get the get the sense that they're sticking with a formula and maybe that's part of the formula yeah um you're right though the one here it's it's not the most exciting but <laughs> i i honestly do think it, it might be it might be a vital little anchor in this movie just to go oh okay well we know we're getting to <clears throat> earth soon we're not going to be on this magical realm for the whole time and yeah there that this is our world that i'm watching it's not something completely different <laughs> Um, but then we do get to Asgard, and you're right, we get that Anthony Hopkins voiceover explaining the Nine Realms and what Asgard is, and their history interacting with Earth in the past, their battles with the Frost Giants, um, and we see it kind of segues nicely into um, that voiceover is in fact um, Anthony Hopkins, Odin, explaining the some some history to his two sons, um, Thor and Loki, um, which we get a nice little uh, uh, childhood sequence with them. Very the two kids that are uh, <laughs> appropriately cast, I think, to look like their older versions. There, good job casting department. It's very Lord of the Ringsy. I felt um, I said that already. Um, it also feels very Game of Thronesy, which so I think obviously you know this is it's grounding all the Asgard stuff in familiar fantasy genre tropes and. Uh, Thor The Dark World tried to do this as well, albeit I think a lot less successfully. But I, I, I kind of think it's, again, this is the kind of, it's the amount of explanation that gives me a foothold in the world. It gives me a foothold in this world interacting with our world. And it doesn't go too deep as to make anything too complicated. We don't spend loads of time explaining what all Thor's powers are, what Mjolnir can do. We're just going to watch that unfold later in the film. We don't we don't get any kind of hint at Loki's origin. That's just going to be unfolding in the course of the story. We don't get told too much about the history of Asgard itself. It's just we're going to spend time there, and that's how we're going to understand how the place works. We're going to, and all we really need to know is that Odin's the king. One day, one of his kids is going to be king, and hmm, is that going to cause a bit of sibling rivalry there? <laughs> yeah. Can you it's, imagine? Yeah, but it, do you not think it, it seems really economical? And I, I, I wonder whether I'm just going to spend a lot of time with this film going, you, you know, you did your job really well there. You did what you needed to do. This was a tough ask of a film, and you executed it as well as could be asked. Because that sequence, I don't sit there and love. I'm not enthralled by what they're telling me because it's all pretty surface level stuff, but it's it, it's enough to make me kind of admire it and what it in in terms of what it achieved. There's a lot of info dump, isn't there? And it it pays off because they successfully translate it into story. And yeah, that like that scene setting up their rivalry 
like you're right, economical is the best thing you can say about it. But at the same time, by setting it up sort of simply and quickly, that it sort of resonates throughout the rest of the film until you get the kind of final scenes with with Thor and Loki, and it you know it, it pays off in a big way. So I mean, I'm tempted, and I, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna be tempted to do a lot of this throughout this podcast. Um, to give a lot of the credit to Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> it feels like the kind of, I mean, like, he was clearly hired to do this movie based on, yes, he had han- handled some bigger budgets before, he's clearly an accomplished director, but he's also an accomplished director of actors from the stage, um, and he's also hugely well-versed in Shakespeare, and this feels like a story that you can you can uh, boil down to those kind of Shakespearean plot elements and play those up and and draw the parallels between these classic stories that have been told because <laughs> this is essentially a tale of myth and legend in terms of the in terms of the 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 Asgardian family involved at the center of it anyway and it's it's brothers and fathers and sons and yeah it's like it's a Games story of, of Thrones it's a story of royal succession yes. Like, I mean, um, it, it feels, um, on the one hand, it feels really lazy to say, oh, Kenneth Branagh equals Shakespeare. But at the same time, you can't watch the film and get away from the fact that there's like this huge kind of Shakespearean themes, if not presentation. Hmm. And and you feel like you've hired someone who knows how to cut to the nub of that. Like Shakespeare, you know, his his plays are, they are efficient plays as well. You know, they... <laughs> They, they have... I beg to differ. Well, <laughs> if you sat um, through like it's... a full production of well, what am I searching for then? The in in terms of themes and in terms of these kind of it, they are very. It's very easy to see what the theme of a Shakespeare play is. Yeah, it's yeah. very easy accessible. To... I think is the yes the best way they're, to describe it. Yeah, very thematically accessible, and I feel like and there's such there's such archetypes now mm-hmm. that. Branner feels like I can imagine him in the editing room knowing exactly what he needs to leave in and cut out. And I, I, I go back to, he is the guy who I want to give credit to because you look at the screenwriters in this and you see there is a story credit for both um, Mark Protosevich and J. Michael Straczynski and screenplay credits for Ashley Miller, Zach Stentz and Don Payne. So this feels like a script that probably went through various iterations. We know this was bouncing around for ages because Matthew Vaughn was once attached. Um, I think probably pre this actually being MCU. And I think Kenneth Branagh was attached from kind of about just after Iron Man and Incredible Hulk coming out. So he worked on it for a two or three year span. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm going to go shorthand and just go everything I liked about this movie. I'm going to say probably Kenneth Branagh is is responsible. For instance, I don't think you're going to have Anthony Hopkins as Odin without Kenneth Branagh. That's a safe assumption, right? <coughs> yeah. He's not turning up for this unless his mate Ken is doing it. And <laughs> there was that um I think it was when I covered the Thor 2 press conference. I remember uh, Chris Hemsworth saying that the first day they were on set in on Thor that he was with Anthony Hopkins, he turned to him and said like saw the set and costumes and said, oh, no acting required here. <laughs> and yet, when you watch those scenes, like, he is acting hard. There's a lot of acting going on there. Um, Hopkins? Yeah. Like, he's yeah. screaming down the camera. Yeah, well, it, 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 that's what I like as well, that he's <laughs> giving his all. And that's another thing. I, I think it would be so easy for an actor like Hopkins to turn up on a movie and go, 
What, okay. what am I doing here? Just turning up for this paycheck. And I think we see that a lot from some of these kind of prestige actors who get... What you're saying is Anthony Hopkins could have turned up and portman it, but he didn't. Uh, yeah, but we'll we'll get to Portman. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think Portman portmans it here. I think she portmans it in the next movie. And I think the reason she doesn't here is... Kenneth Branagh again, but I mean, yeah. You, you see, you see, you look at you look at someone like Tom Hiddleston who had worked with Branagh on um, Wallander, so that was probably instrumental in him being cast here. Um, and yeah, I just feel like he gets the most out of these actors, um, and it does feel in some of the Asgard scenes very stagey, very elevated, very Shakespearean, <laughs> and um, I, I just think it works for this material, and um, it, it's. You get a different vibe down on Earth, but certainly when you're up on Asgard, I think he was probably the perfect choice. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, you, you you said that about Chris Hemsworth talking about the, or the kind of the sets and the costumes. And there's probably a discussion to be had about Asgard in relation to how it works as a bigger place, how it looks kind of CG-wise when you're looking at the, the whole expanse of it. But in terms of actually people talking in rooms, they're all real sets. They're, the costumes are all real. There's no kind of, you know, half measures there. All of all of that stuff is very real. In fact, so again, probably very stagey that you're building these proper sets to act in, these proper costumes that are uncomfortable to act in. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I think it pays off on all, on all of those... And all, in all of those scenes that are in throne rooms and bedrooms and stuff and on stairways in Asgard, I think you get some you get some real good stuff where you can just focus on the characters and the acting and everything is writ large. It is all kind of betrayals and um, familial squabbling and anger and people acting rashly and you just get to you just get to see these characters kind of playing off each other in a very elevated way and in in these sets that feel real um and in these costumes that look amazing um and you do feel like you're watching a wonderful little play for all of those <laughs> asgard sequences and it's kind of it's kind of almost a shame when you have to when you have to go down to earth and look at new mexico instead yeah i mean you say that like the New Mexico stuff, especially, it, like it's all doing the kind of fish out of water Thor thing. Yeah, is really entertaining in itself as well. So it's like they've yes, it kind is. of they've got their two halves of the movie, and they don't necessarily mesh completely, but they're both really fun in their own right. I think the interplay between the two is good. I mean, I talked about that production design. That that um, town that they're in in New Mexico. <laughs> was like an old west um, oh, yeah, yeah. facade which they built up an entire town around and did the practical explosions there and stuff and they it was designed so like um there was this one big road leading um from the center of town outwards like the bridge in Asgard and uh, there were certain visual markers in both places that were supposed to correspond um <laughs> And uh, yeah, again, I think that's something that it it kind of comes across. You you get um you get a sense of place from both. You get a sense that they are kind of mirrors of each other. Um, but then you also get the ridiculousness of the contrasting the two, especially when you are able to send down the Warriors Three and Lady Sif into the New Mexico town and knock on the door of a diner. <laughs> um, yeah, I think all that stuff really works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it I guess the question is which do you think works better? Um cuz like I'm I would say the kind of bits that fall down for me are the action sequences on earth. Like I really yeah. I really enjoy the Asgardian slash sort of interdimensional action sequences. But when they when they get to Earth it kind of looks a, like it's not as entertaining for me. Um, yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Those I mean, so we're thinking of the scene where Thor goes to retrieve the hammer. Yeah. Where the destroyer turns up in New Mexico. Yeah, they're they're certainly for me nowhere near as fun as fighting the Frost Giants and Laufey and um, Thor and Loki duking it out on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, what doesn't work for me up in Asgard is the it's the it's the geography of the place. And I again, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder whether this is one of the things that the movie had to do to tr- to kind of sell you on both places simultaneously was to try and established that this was a big world up in Asgard but you're only going to see a small pocket of it and then the the, the so the flip side to that is you have to keep everything kind of in a small contained area down on earth as well um and I, I like it it feels different it being this little battle down out in the middle of Nowheresville um as opposed to in the middle of a major city uh with things you know, buildings crushing people left, right, and center. Um, but it does feel small. And I think as a result, Asgard feels a little bit small as well. You've got all these grand halls in the palace and, <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. But then you've got one bridge coming out of it, kind of. And I just yeah. wondered, what is the rest of Asgard? You know, what are the people of Asgard like? Yeah, um, I mean, you see a little bit of that in Thor: The Dark World, but even then, like, it feels like they could have had like still some kind a of huge amount. Yeah, well, you see, like an extra balcony and a couple more rooms. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, like they could have done, you know, like a large. So the way Asgard is presented, it looks like one giant palace is the whole thing, essentially, with a bridge coming out of it. Yeah, and so yeah, maybe Which, they maybe they could have established a bit more geography and structure and the shape of the place. I mean, it wouldn't have hurt certainly. You get that one, you get that one flyover, don't you? Which comes yeah. right at the start before you really know what's happening. Yeah, I, I actually quite like that introduction where you kind of think you're seeing it, but then it flips the camera upside down and reveals that you're actually just seeing. So that's what Asgard is. It's kind of like this floating city. Um, but then when you do pan over it, it's it's all a little bit disappointing CG and kind of like, I, I, I don't know, I got the impression from, I watched a couple of the featurettes and stuff on the Blu-ray and they were talking about trying to combine lots of different things, but a lot of it coming from the original Kirby illustrations and... I I got the sense of it being kind of like, oh, this is kind of this fantastical future as seen through the lens of someone 50 years ago. Like, not, it didn't feel exciting to me. It didn't was, oh, what is this world? It's You know, it wasn't Avatar. Um, (laughs) You know, that's James Cameron. For all Avatar's faults, James Cameron introduces a world that feels huge that you're just seeing a pocket of. Whereas this introduces a world that doesn't feel that big you still feel like you're only seeing a pocket of 
Um, but also, you know, if you don't see the rest of it, eh, uh, I, yeah, I don't feel like there's loads of hidden secrets to be revealed. Which again, I think might, you know, that might be a bit of a a Shakespearean thing. You know, we we only really care about those. You know, when you, you're uh, when you're watching King Lear, you go, you're not going. Well, I wonder what the common people are thinking about all of this. <laughs> you're you, you're tied up in the family drama, aren't you? You don't really yeah. care about the wider kingdom. Yeah, true. I mean, you you get a small sense maybe of the other people don't really want Loki as king, but I mean, it's still it's only Thor's mates, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, who again, you kind of feel like it's the inner circle. It's kind of like the, the heads of the, you know, it'd be like the knights or in in the castle aren't really keen on this new guy who's usurped the other king. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem with that is if you start doing that, like you create a different film. Like yeah. if you start c- caring about the sort of inequalities of power in Asgard and the like dynastic structure of their government, then you're <laughs> you're just like, well... These are all interesting ideas, but they're not this idea. Mm. But I think it is. I think it's the nature of having to do this split story of Asgard and Earth that if you are going to have to just focus in on the uh, inner court kind of stuff up on Asgard, that when you come down to Earth as well, you can't do this big thing that's spanning across America. You can't be hopping from city to city, and you know this. This can't be in. <clears throat> Uh, New York and you can't have different Avengers turning up like it has to be literally this kind of smaller self-contained thing and basically everyone comes to Thor rather than Thor <laughs> going to anyone else yeah. so like the hammer's there so that brings Coulson and then you know Hawkeye and then the destroyer will turn up in that town rather than having to pursue him anywhere <laughs> um, so I, I do think it ends up making the movie feel a little bit small a little bit a little bit maybe too contained it doesn't certainly looking back it doesn't feel as grand as important as some of the other stories um that marvel have told but like i said i i kind of i kind of go back to it and think yeah but i think these are all smart filmmaking decisions ultimately and this was a film again that had to carry a lot of burden in this universe and kind of and kind of fine with how they did it yeah, like there's nothing in there's nothing in Thor one certainly that you look at and go that was a total failure, and mm. Hawkeye uh, was it a total failure? That it was like it was obviously a <laughs> kind of crappy Easter egg, but I feel like they've just been trying to they've been trying to save that character <laughs> ever since. Every every <laughs> basically even Joss Whedon struggled in that first Avengers film. It's like oh, oh don't, don't worry, you don't need to do anything. We've already set him up. And then Joss Whedon's probably sat there watching... Uh, he's halfway through production on the Avengers watching Thor and going, okay, so what did they... Oh, shit. <laughs> I tell you, and my I've, fundamental... I've, I, I've literally brainwashed him in my first scene. My we fundamental still don't know problem, who this guy is. <laughs> my fundamental problem with that Hawkeye scene is if you're going to introduce Hawkeye, have him do a Hawkeye thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, it's quite his, clearly his... a reshoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just do you want like, me to? Do you want me to take the shot? Nah, nah, yeah. don't, don't, don't do take it, Clint. The shot. <laughs> no. uh, but I'm Hawkeye. That's what I do. <laughs> nah, Clint. <laughs> yeah, like they. <sighs> I mean, the problem is there was no reason for him to be there, and it, like you say, it was an obvious reshoot, and sort mm. of if he's not going to actually be introduced, like why bother? I think they've probably learned their lesson in terms of doing that kind of tease these days. 
Yeah, we. I, I can't think of anything in terms of, you know, introduce something new for later on since this that has been yeah. as clumsy. I mean, we do, we, every so often we have to pause and go, Infinity Stones, remember Infinity Stones, you're going to want to. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> this, is, this will be important later, this will yeah. be on the test. Uh, whereas in, the, in in these original films, it was just like, <laughs> I, there are Infinity Stones here, we're just not going to tell you that, that that's what they are yet. I was in the cinema with my friend watching Thor the second time. My friend who's like enough of a Marvel geek to know who Hawkeye is but didn't realise it was Hawkeye in the film. <laughs> because they did it, they executed the cameo so badly. Like, I was just like, I literally said, what did you think of Hawkeye? And he was like, Hawkeye was in it? I was like, you know the guy with the bow and arrow who calls Barton? And he was like, oh, that was Hawkeye? What? Yeah, so... And it's really weird. I'm sure you, um, Coulson says something like, oh, um, you know, grab a gun. Well, first of all, why are you telling Hawkeye to grab a gun? Because you must know that he is the bow and arrow guy. And then Hawkeye kind of goes to grab the gun and then thinks better of it and grabs his bow and arrow. And you're like, oh, this guy's got a bow and arrow. Okay, that's different. What's he doing? He's he's, the, he's, he's going to get his high vantage point and, and no, that's it. He's just going to watch for a bit. <laughs> uh, that, and that, that sequence isn't great either. So we need to give Thor someone to fight. Who should we give him? Big guy? <laughs> big, 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 big man. Yeah, will he will he beat him eventually? But it'll take him two extra rolls in the mud. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Asgard, James. Um, and um, uh, I, I want to talk about the the sequence where Thor goes off to fight the Frost Giants um, because. I know Marvel gets an awful lot of stick for the quality of their villains, but obviously this is the film that introduces Tom Hiddleston as Loki, who I don't think is kind of firing on all cylinders here. Uh, I think where he really comes into his own is the Avengers, but he is still very good here. And as a villain, just from a a character level, that, that character is very well written and has good motivations and um he is the kind of character that you want to think about you want to think about what's driving him in each scene um and you imagine that hiddleston has that stuff going through his head as well like okay what why am i acting in this way in this scene and it always tracks um but the secondary villain in this movie is laufey uh the frost giant um played by con and I don't know if I clocked this the first time around or cared enough the first time around, but Laufey's a really good secondary villain. I thought he was, like, uh, legitimately threatening. Um, I thought the performance was great. I really liked the, the the character design with the red eyes and the and the blue skin, which, again, was all practical and... Yeah, I thought here we had two very, very good villains. And it's just a shame that Laufey gets dispatched so kind of, you know, as an afterthought in the third act. Is Laufey really a villain? Like, I guess he's an antagonist. I don't necessarily think he's like... Well, no, but he's the secondary bad guy. You could... I mean, because I was watching this film go and I, and I couldn't remember how Laufey ended what what you know i couldn't remember whether he was killed or not 
uh, on this rewatch. Um, and I was thinking, I wonder if there's any way they could bring him back, or I wonder whether they ever considered making him the villain in the second one instead of that Dark Elf, whatever his name was, Malekith. Um, <laughs> because I I really liked him, and I thought he worked as a he worked as a threat. I think if you're going to to use Laufey, it would make sense to make more of his connection to Loki. What in terms in terms of them knowing each other, or yeah, because Lau- 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 Laufey is Loki's father. Yeah, like biological father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the flashback like confuses me, but I think you know they kind of deal with that um, the sort of issue of parentage in this film, and then it goes away. And I think they could, if they were going to reuse Laufey, it would make more sense to play that up again. I d- I'm, I mean, I I disagree there because I I, I don't think it. I think the parentage thing is hugely important, and I think that kind of is what drives Loki. We get the sense that early in the film he's always been mischievous and he's, at least early in the film, is driven by jealousy of his brother. So his original betrayal is to mess up Thor's... um, hit the ceremony where Thor is going to be named king because he wants to ruin his big brother's big day because he's jealous of him. And... He doesn't want to kill his brother. He doesn't want to do any of that stuff. But he kind of... He wants to be just as important to his father as Thor is. And he feels like he's not because Thor is the one who's going to be king. Um, And that drives the decisions he makes right at the end of the film where even when he is fucking everything up left, right and centre, trying to kill his brother, trying to um, do everything, he's trying to frame it in a way that when Odin wakes up... He, it will look like Loki was the good son all along and it was him who saved the day and that Thor was the impetuous one who needed to be banished down to Earth. But the thing that really twists Loki from being kind of the one trying to slightly undermine his brother is the revelation that he is the son of Laufey. And so it doesn't <clears throat> directly impact Laufey that much, but what it does do is it turns Loki up from kind of the guy who throws a spanner in the works to the guy who wants to, you know, really, really go after everyone who's around him, who wants to leave his brother down on Earth, who wants uh, who wants to usurp his father as king of Asgard. Um, and his plan to do so is basically to murder the guy that abandoned him, his true father, in front of the guy whose approval he's always been searching for. So I do think it is really, really central to the story, but maybe not central to Laufey's story or to Laufey's place in the plot. Okay. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's a fair point that, like, the revelation is what turns Loki from being kind of sort of a bit jealous to, like, proper full-on villain. Malevolent. Yeah. Malevolent, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, like, I just think, like, Loki never gets that kind of approval that he's sort of searching for and i think if you were going to bring back laufey it would be hard to to like move forward without using him like what like you know what do you see as laufey's story if you remove loki from the equation because i obviously there's a kind of revenge aspect to you took my child and then used him against me sorry are you talking about in a future film or in this film well just in the sense of laufey as a villain 
like in a future film in this film like you know what's what what's driving him yeah what's driving him well i guess that he has this long-standing uh, rivalry with odin and that this would in this film if he hadn't have died it would have been odin's two sons who had humiliated him and um defeated him and um that potentially you bring him back but uh, loki also realizes that you know the guy who he fought were his father and his brother humiliated him as well and goes to laufey that time and actually does work with him um or basically the third act twist here which was loki pretending to team up with laufey could have been a sequel plot if they'd have played it differently in this movie. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean it ties into the it ties into all of the it ties into all of the good stuff with Loki's motivations in the third act here. So maybe maybe what they did was exactly right. But I guess what I'm saying <laughs> is that I liked I liked Laufey enough as a villain and I liked that performance enough from Confure that he felt more than just your your standard kind of secondary baddie. I guess, um, and I, guess... I wanted to see more of him, which isn't, you know, wasn't the case for Malekith, wasn't the case for Ronan the Accuser, wasn't the case for really any of other, of Marvel's kind of cosmic kind of baddies. I guess what you could say is that in this film, Laufey gets about as much development as most Marvel villains. <laughs> and like, the only reason it's notable is that Loki gets, like, Loki is the one who's the actual villain. Yeah. Like oh, he, so basic, basically, I liked him a lot more than you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, he works, but he also works as a really nice uh, wrinkled cog in the what's making Loki tick. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I like I said, I buy that the whole way through with Loki and with Hiddleston. And I think that's why he is, um, on film at least, Marvel's best villain, is because he tracks... Obviously, the performance is great, but the... The what's driving him makes sense. The the kind of the search for approval, the search for identity, um, but also this kind of this lust for power and this jealousy, and it, it it makes for this really nice cauldron of emotions within that character. Um, and I really like when you've got Loki and Thor on screen together, which is kind of limited here, but you get those wonderful kind of manipulative <laughs> conversations that you can you can kind of... It's it's really well played that as an audience, you can see what strings Loki's <laughs> pulling. You yeah. see in those opening scenes, you see the doe eyes that he's pulling to his brother. It's like, oh, it, in, it invades the Frost Giants? We, we couldn't <laughs> possibly do that, Thor. Um, <laughs> it's really wonderful. And then him going down to Earth and kind of... Um, telling Thor that his dad's dead. Um, and then even in the final kind of the final action sequence where he's kind of doing his little bits of trickery and stuff like that. Um, it's really good. It's really good when you kind of see Loki letting the mask slip and letting, letting his true self show forward. But also when you've got those scenes with Odin as a counterbalance where you kind of, you see, you see that there is a there is a genuine person at the heart of this, and I think that's why I think that's what people cling on to, and I think that's that you invest emotion in is because it is that little. I know he's a bad guy, but is he really a bad guy? Is he fully a bad guy? Is there that is there that little spark inside him? Could he could he be a goodie in the <laughs> end? Is, again, I keep talking about like press conferences and stuff, but when when I saw the Thor two 
press conference, someone asked uh, Tom Hiddleston, is Loki evil or just misguided? And he said, that is a question I've asked myself three times. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah, I found that funny. Like, one thing I do want to say, actually, is that the... We talked about the moment when Loki kind of gets that twist from sort of misguided to evil. Yes. And I think it's something that they don't quite nail with Thor. Like, you can see Thor's arc is he has to learn humility. Yes. But I always feel like the exact beat of him learning humility is lost somewhere. Like, I think it possibly ended up in the cutting room floor. Well, um, it's not. It, there, there definitely isn't a moment. I think. Uh, well, like, the, 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 the way the it happens, the he... key scene might be him thinking that his dad has died. Weirdly, the key, the, the key to him learning that humility, might be Loki presenting him with the kind of "it's a wonderful life" kind of. You know, this is this is uh, this is the the really bad version of the world. And then Thor actually learns, oh no, I have got a second chance. If I am the hero that I need to be, I can prevent this bad stuff from happening. I can stop my father from dying. I can stop Asgard from being overrun. I can return home. I can be the hero. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But you're right. There isn't, there isn't really one crunch moment which Loki has in that, in that scene with Anthony Hopkins on the staircase where he says you are Luffy's son. Yeah. Like, for me, especially, sort of, I always saw the moment of him sort of learning his place in the world was, of Thor, sorry, was, you know, he realises he can't pick up Mjolnir and then he gets drunk and then the next moment he's cooking breakfast for everyone because he's become humble. (laughs) And it's like... it feels like there was a scene in the middle there where something happened that either got cut from the script or cut from the filming. Yeah. Like cut from the edit or something. Like it just, it it feels like it's missing a character beat. Do you think as well though, it might just be that in terms of those two things we just said, you know, I, I spent that kind of like five minutes waxing lyrical about what pushes Loki at this moment and there is this element to his character but there's that element and there's this and there's that whereas with Thor his arc is 
he is an arrogant warrior who needs to learn to be humble to be the king that Asgard really needs. That's not as interesting, is it? <laughs> it's just not as interesting. And watching that first scene again with Odin telling the story of the kingdoms to Thor and Loki, and you see kind of this one thoughtful child listening to the story and the other one going, well, we'll march in there and we'll bash them, father, won't we? <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is the story where, you know, this this traditional douchey hero is going to, like, we're going to realise there is a subversion. But if we didn't already know that this was the story of Thor... You know, if this movie was called Loki, instead you'd think, well, that bla- that brash hero, his way will be wrong. And we'll find <laughs> out that this guy who is coming with a different perspective to things that was always kind of, uh, was was never expected to be the best king, that maybe he he might be the best one after all. Um, and uh, it's weird, that opening scene, I think if you played it out of context, you would think that Loki would be the protagonist. But because this is called Thor, it has to be his story. <laughs> and it's just not as interesting. And so you've seen, in the, then the next time both of these characters turn up in the Avengers, Thor is basically a, you know, a, a, a big muscly prop, whereas Loki is the guy at the centre of things driving everything forward. Um, <laughs> Joss Whedon certainly found Loki more interesting. And, you know, there was no question about Loki had to be brought back for the Dark World, uh, which um, it's not very good. Uh, but Loki's probably, again, the best part of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just more interesting, James. If they'd <laughs> just... have called this film Loki, which, again, they couldn't. This film had to be Thor and it does a fantastic job. But all the Loki stuff is infinitely more interesting. Do you think how much of that is just down to Tom Hiddleston, though? Because, like, he is easily sort of... I think it's half and half. I think it's half and half. I think Chris Hemsworth does exactly what you want an actor playing Thor to do. Yeah. Um, uh, He doesn't kind of reinvent the wheel or anything, but he's very good at the arrogance and then he's very good at the true hero moment at the end. And he's good at having giant arms. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which again, again, Joss Whedon figured out a way to make it better. (laughs) Should we take the sleeves away? Yes, we should take the sleeves away. (laughs) Yeah, like Hiddleston's kind of, he's got a more complex character and he's a more complex actor, so it kind of... Yeah. Yeah, it stitches together really nicely. Like, it's kind of hard to imagine an MCU without Loki. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, I think we're all hoping that he is he is going to play a big part in the third film because, obviously, uh, as, as things stand, he is supposed to be standing in for Odin um, as King of Asgard. I'd be surprised if we don't see Loki helping out in Guardians. In, in Guardians? Guardians? Sorry, not in Guardians, in Infinity War. Yeah, I do. And if, you, if you're going to bring all of the heroes together for Infinity War, then it might be interesting to bring back some of the living villains as well. Like, hey, I, I know you're a badden, but this is all of our worlds that are about to get destroyed. We could really do with your help. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other cast, though. And so I think we should probably talk about the... The trio down on Earth. Um, before we get into the other two, James, do you just want to do your little ode to Darcy Lewis right now? Why, <laughs> I she, think people, is people is she still your favourite character in the MCU? Yeah. yeah Tell us is. why. What's so great about Darcy? Uh, I just think she punctures the... like. Any time a woman is allowed to be funny works for me. Because, um, mm. you know, you don't see that very often in the first place. 
specifically, I think Kat Dennings has great comic timing. Yes. Uh, and like unusual inflections and intonations and uh just basically everything about her makes me think there should be more of her yeah I mean, she she's really crucial to the fish out of water comedy stuff with thor because i mean we'll talk about natalie portman in a second but i uh, she's she's kind of playing the the straight down the middle character um and in, in in terms of the kind of science aspects, but also as the love interest. And so she has a very particular point of view. But for all of the funny stuff, so when Thor smashes his cup into the ground, I think it's a lot funnier when there is an audience surrogate in the place, which, I mean, you talked at the start about Natalie Portman maybe being that. I think really it's Darcy. She is... She is us. She is us watching Thor smash his cup into the ground and going, what the hell? And like seeing him <laughs> and going, oh, like he's pretty hot for a homeless guy and all this kind of, it's, it, it's, a, it's a nice little acknowledgement that yes, okay, all of this kind of grand familial drama has been going on up, up on Asgard. Um, we can pause and have a bit of a laugh now. We can we can have fun with him. <laughs> the taking the picture of him uh, uh, when he's uh, <laughs> drinking the coffee, and then that picture showing back up on the fake driver's license for um, Donald Blake. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is really nice. Um, and in fact, uh, James, that might be a nice way to segue into uh, talking a little bit how this is different from the origin of Thor, Thor on the page because obviously Donald Blake is a huge part of early Thor mythology. I don't and I don't know how deep into the comics Donald Blake remains a thing. Um but it was certainly something that when I read about I was very surprised because um Thor has an alter ego. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like okay the classic version of Thor is a guy a doctor Donald Blake who I mean, I don't really like to use the word lame, but he was always described <laughs> as lame physician because, you know, it was the 60s and that was allowed then. He's a chump. <laughs> no, he's, he's got, no, he's got a bad leg. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Different lame. All right, fine. Yeah. Okay. So, I understand your trepidation now. <laughs> yeah. Um, Donald Blake, who is physically impaired, hmm. finds a stick in a cave which when he taps it onto the ground, turns him into... It's Mjolnir in disguise and it turns him into Thor. Okay. Uh, they ran with that setup with Thor as a sort of something that Donald Blake transforms into for a long while. And But why is that the case? Is 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 it the case that he's on Earth having been banished by Odin to learn humility? Well, no, or? This, is, this is the thing. Like, it was just the stick transformed him into, into Thor. Um, right. So and he then wasn't. It was a he lot. wasn't from Asgard. Well, he was in the sense that the other Asgardian gods existed, but right. it was just kind of whoever had the stick was Thor. Like there wasn't there wasn't a great difference between Thor and Donald Blake. Um, and then it was later. It was established a much longer time down the line. I like. I wish I knew the exact issues and stuff, but I you know I didn't look it up. Um, <laughs> But then they established this kind of backstory of, oh, actually, Donald Blake didn't exist. Thor, like, Donald Blake was always a cover for Thor, and he was always intended to find the stick. 
right. that would tra- that would give him access to his powers, and thus he would learn humility. Like, okay. The, the idea was Thor. Thor was later established to have been sent to Earth as an amnesiac to to learn humility. And was that a pro- was that a kind of a classic retcon, or was there always a, was there a sense that that was? Oh no, that yeah, that was a that was a retcon in every right. Okay, established <laughs> thing like it wasn't. It was never intended from the start that Donald Blake was Thor in disguise. It was something that was something that came a long time later, and essentially they did it so they could ditch Donald Blake as part of the setup. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So he disappears from that point on, and it yeah. just becomes Thor. Um, and I guess they're kind of in the comics at the moment, kind of going back to that idea with. Jane Foster being the incumbent Thor and kind of transforming between her human form and her Asgardian form. Yeah, I mean, it's something they return to quite often, like not just with the Jane Foster and version of Thor. Like there have been other people who've been Thor for a while. Thor had a civilian identity using his own body. Like, let me try and remember. Let me try and remember the name. (laughs) I'm thinking it was Sigurd Jarlson. Okay. Where, and he right. was like a construction worker, where which was basically just he took his Thor costume off and went to work. Yeah. So, like, they've done different things with the civilian identity setup. And, yeah, that Donald Blake thing in the film is just... It's just an Easter egg, really. Just, just a, nice a little, nod. nice little nod, yes. Because, yeah. um, in fact, Donald Blake is supposed to be her ex-boyfriend here. Yeah. Um, who I wonder whether we'll ever meet. That would be fun. Probably not, given that Natalie Portman isn't coming back. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask, um, Seb always talks about how the kind of, the Marvel Universe of the films, um, a lot of the kind of key inspirations are taken from the ultimate versions of the characters rather than the rather than the kind of traditional versions. Is, is that the case here, or is it a little bit of both, or is it more traditional minus the Donald Blake? It's actually interesting in how little of ultimate thor goes into into this version of the character like i guess the sense that there's a very sort of small portion of the film where they're just like oh he's a delusional guy who thinks he's thor like that in ultimates when thor was introduced that was the setup for the character like He's this incredibly powerful guy who thinks he's a Asgardian god, but you don't know whether he actually is or not. Yeah. Um, so that's the only thing they kind of transplant from the Ultimate version. Like, Ultimate Thor is is this kind of Scandinavian hippie. Uh, and he's a really good he's a really good character. But aside from the kind of mental health thing they do, they, like, this is in every way the... The, Mar- the main Marvel Universe classic Thor, yeah. Yeah. And then, I, th- I guess, the other question I want to ask, and this this kind of in- it ties into Stellan Skarsgård's character, who's obviously um, Eric Selvig, and um, has been a character who I think has had um, a surprising endurance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They seem to like calling him back um, at every given opportunity, because <laughs> he's been in, been in both... Um, both Avengers films and there was no reason why he needed to be in Thor the Dark World but they they find a way to get him in there um, and in fact crucial to the third act um, but he is kind of um, and he's our kind of our token Scandinavian uh, character here because uh, he is aware when Thor comes down faster than everyone else that the things that this crazy man is describing is actually Nordic mythology um 
and we've kind of had it explained to us at the start of the movie by Odin that the myths and legends that have made their way down to Earth are, you know, they're, they're, the reason they're on Earth is because that um, they used to interact with humans, and so that is part of our kind of. It's just, but it's faded into history. But Stellan Skarsgård recognizes it um, as Nordic mythology and talks to Thor about it. And I love the moment where he brings out the children's book and kind of points to the Bifrost and Loki, and um, <laughs> that's all really fun. Um, but so, I guess this is a two prong question in that. How strong is all the Nordic mythology stuff in the comics? How closely is is are the characters in Marvel comics to the the kind of the the myths of the Nordic <clears throat> gods? Um, and in this movie, given and and I don't know whether this is a dichotomy that the comics has as well, is that given that these are supposed to be like what what we in our world know of Thor and Loki as like the god of mischief and the god of thunder um they are things that pre-exist in our world they are they are our myths and legends and folklore but these characters also exist and and how does that duality work because i find myself in this film going well if stellan skarsgard knows that loki is the god of mischief like the, and that we have this sinister looking page in this children's book. If everyone on earth knows that Loki's a bit of a wrong un, um, how come they don't know that up on Asgard yet? Yeah, I think you probably have to give them a bit of sort of artistic leeway with that kind of thing. <laughs> the relationship between sort of the mythology and the reality or the, fi- the fictional reality, like, is kind of downplayed. Like, they, I mean, I guess in. The reason Loki isn't acknowledged as sort of the god of mischief is because this is an origin story and he, you know, he becomes that throughout the course of the film. Uh, Like in the Marvel Universe, everyone knows, oh, don't trust Loki, and people do anyway. And, you know, Kieran Kieran wrote that big journey into mystery arc that was essentially saying Loki is trapped by the perception of who he is like he can't escape the fact that he will betray people and that he's never going to be trusted yeah like that that was a major conceit of kieran's run on the character so you know there is interplay between the the myth and the reality but Mm. you know in terms of it's not very self-aware is my is i guess what i'm saying yeah like it's not it's not played with any sort of kind of postmodern. yeah yeah um, and this is another really nitpicky thing, but <laughs> how how am I supposed to be um, grappling with the the kind of the timeline of of Asgard in relation to Earth and the age of these characters? Like, how old is are Thor and Loki supposed to be? Are they supposed to be thousands of years old? I know <clears> they're they're that it's mentioned that. Earth, the people on Earth are mortal, so it suggests that there is some kind of immortality to the Asgardians. Um, so, are, are Thor and Loki thousands of years old already? Yeah, I mean, the again, it's kind of hard to to place because the way they approach Asgardians in the Marvel universe is they exist in the cycle of Ragnarok where they continually die and are reborn sort of in similar but different forms. Well, I guess um, that could explain the the how we know on Earth then. 
Yeah, you yeah, know? it could do. But again, in this film specifically, I get the sense that Asgardians are functionally immortal unless they get killed. Yeah. Um, but then you have the thing of like, Odin is obviously very old, but he's, you know, because he's clearly aged, but also he's the Allfather, so he's as old as the universe, uh, essentially. So, you know, yeah. there are, th- this is the kind of thing where it's very much this is mythology and if you start unpicking it it's not gonna hold up to much scrutiny like yeah it i'm trying to think what the term is like it it has it has veracity but it's not truthful yeah 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 i get what you're saying it's just um i have the wrong kind of brain to accept that kind of stuff <laughs> so i do sit i do sit watching this film especially on a rewatch going oh and i actually mm, i remember mm. the quote it's um the quote from angel where someone's saying like how come we can take photos of you if you don't appear in a mirror because cameras use mirrors and he says it's not physics it's metaphysics <laughs> like that's the that's the explanation yeah like is the, it, is... the asgardians can age when they have to <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so basically, it's following comic book logic, but just sticking that onto the movies. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll go with it then, James, but I'm not entirely <laughs> happy with it. Um, let's talk about the one major cast member who we haven't spoken much about yet, and that is Natalie Portman as Jane Foster. Um, and I know she's taken a lot of stick on this podcast before, and I'm sure you're about to give her some more of that, um, James, but I actually think she is pretty good here it's not that interesting a character but i think she has a lot of chemistry with chris hemsworth um which is almost entirely evaporated by the time the sequel comes around um i feel like she is engaging in the scenes and trying and trying to i I think she benefits from working with kenneth branagh here i was watching some of the special features and seeing them kind of talking to each other between scenes and she seemed invested and seemed like she was she was you know it, trying to get her head around a character and trying to deliver a good performance here and she's a fantastic actress um you know it's it was a real get thought for the thor movies to to cast natalie portman as jane foster um but i do wonder whether just the arc of her and the people she was working with on these films she went from okay well i get to work with kenneth branagh here okay well yep great that's a director who really likes his actors and i'm probably going to get to spend some good time with my director here she then goes to the next film thinks she's going to get patty jenkins who she is kind of lobbied for she is kind of like said you know i don't really want to do this but i'll do it if you get me a a, a director i want um she loses <laughs> her and instead gets alan taylor who um it doesn't sound like that kind of director at all. And then the third film has picked up Taika Waititi, who, um, uh, again, probably doesn't sound like the kind of director who an actress like Natalie Portman would get excited by. Obviously, she never came back for any of the Avengers films. Um, and I think she might have got soured on the process, but after this film, because I, I think she's perfectly good here. But I get the I get the impression from your big sigh a second ago <laughs> that you're not entirely on the same page. Yeah, I just I feel like given that it's like the Natalie Portman who can turn in performances like Black Swan or whatever, like she's you know, I just I don't see her as the lead in a romantic comedy and I'm not quite sure how she ended up in this film. Like I 
I don't think there is any chemistry between her and Chris Hemsworth. Like, I think Kat Dennings has, like, this kind of natural chemistry with him, even though there's no romance there. <laughs> and, like, their, just their comedic chemistry is far more compelling than than anything that Hemsworth and Portman come up with. Yeah, well, I think in, in certainly in the comedy side of things, I mean, Natalie Portman has never really done broad comedy or if she has done comedic films she hasn't been really the comedic element in them so i'm just just glancing around db so stuff like your highness no strings attached i guess there's a bit of comedy to garden state which might be one of her kind of most like i mean she's the manic pixie dream girl archetype in that movie um but in but the 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 kind of the romance side of things uh, she's done a lot of, and obviously that was kind of the main beat she was playing throughout the later Star Wars movies. Um, I, I, I think she, I think she's she's a very good actress, and in terms of the romantic comedy, yes, she's got one side of that nailed. And maybe you just have to accept that in this movie, the romance is Natalie Portman, and the comedy is Kat Dennings. Or the comedy, I guess the comedy's everywhere else but her, because Stellan Skarsgård gets it in that kind of drinking scene. Um, there's an extended version of that where they do a dance in the street on these deleted <laughs> scenes, if anyone wants to track that down. Uh, so that's that's fun. But again, I think this might be a, a little bit like we talked about Liv Tyler in um, The Incredible Hulk, where she's just not given an awful lot to do. She kind of has to play the straight-laced, boring one um while all the funny stuff's going on around her um and maybe the maybe the fact that you've got Kat Dennings there means that she's not allowed to do that stuff can i blame Kat Dennings for this james uh, see the way i <laughs> the way i always see it is they knew she was sort of comedically uh i don't want to say inept but i guess that's what i mean <laughs> And well, it's just not her to... thing, is it? Especially, well, the, especially the those kind of that, like, the kind of comedy that this film is reaching for, anyway. Yeah, they. I feel like they could have put a different actress in the role and not required a comedy sidekick. Yeah, like, that, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm so trying to think fair. of someone off the top of my head, but you know, I'm terrible with actresses. So, you know, well, okay, just Gwyneth Paltrow compared compared to Natalie Portman. Like yeah. Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow has a much greater ease to her performance like it, it sparks off Robert Downey Jr she can deliver thing jokes and things that are funny without they making them seem her... like jokes like she doesn't get a huge amount of material but I mean what... yeah you're right I mean I'm I'm thinking as well kind of Peggy in the first Cats from America yeah, movie yeah. neither of neither Peggy nor Pepper get given a huge amount of jokes but they get a lot of witty interplay with the hero and i was gonna say well maybe that thor is a bit more of a kind of like a boring hero a bit more straight laced but then that's you know it's just robert downey jr basically isn't it like captain america is a pretty straight laced hero as well and peggy still gets to kind of have the the witty repartee with him and bounce off other characters like howard stark and get a little bit testy with um with tommy lee jones and stuff like that so yeah I don't know. It's just it's just a not particularly interesting character, and maybe hiring an actress who's that good uh, doing other stuff kind of she is going to get bored more quickly doing that as well. 
Um, I mean, so at this point in the franchise, I'm not, I'm not like devastated. She's not coming back. I just think in this film, she's not. She doesn't detract from things at all in this film. She doesn't do anything wrong. She's just not particularly exciting. Right, there are things, there are certain line deliveries and stuff that I just feel like she wasn't really into them in the first place. Like the one that always sticks with me in this film is the bit where she says, she goes, oh my God. And it's like a double meaning of God. Oh, that is a horrible, horrible line. Yeah, like maybe it would be impossible to make that work, but she wasn't even trying. Like she knew it was crap and she wasn't hiding it. I've got to say that is one of the few moments in this film where I think it entirely drops the ball. Um, I've spoken already about, I think the costumes in this film are really strong. I love what they do with the helmets. They don't, the, 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 sorry. (laughs) I love what they do with the helmets. Um, But yeah, the, the kind of stuff that they do with the, with the suits, the way that the fabrics and the metals weave into each other and that Thor has this big flowing cape that moves perfectly with him and um, the hammer is really well designed. Um, uh, All of that, you know, really impressive headgear. Um, uh, Odin's golden eyepiece with his kind of helmet and stuff as well. It all just looks really fantastic. And Thor... Chris Hemsworth as Thor is a really impressive, uh, an impressive specimen. And you are in that third act just waiting and waiting for him to become the God of Thunder again. And that moment where he does, it's just crying out for a hero shot. It's crying out for just (laughs) the camera panning back up him in costume return to his full glory as Mjolnir flies and grabs and lands in his hand and yes then maybe like a funny little line from Kat Dennings or you know a a moment where Natalie Portman and Thor lock eyes as he is restored to that but instead we lose the hero shot and we get that dumb oh my god line and I was so disappointed on this rewatch because I couldn't remember how it happened and I was looking forward to this big reveal of this perfect you know this is the moment that we should be standing up in the cinema and kind of cheering because our hero has returned and he's about to you know put his hammer through the destroyer and yeah it just it's entirely fumbled um it's it's disappointing and it's disappointing as well that it comes in the middle of that third act where basically our characters are fighting Gort from the day the Ursa still and not the good version <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean what, what do you think about that final that kind of final showdown with the destroyer oh it's not the final showdown anyways it's kind of like the it reminded me of the um, the Smallville sequence in Man of Steel uh, especially another nice reminder because Thor who when he realises that he can't fight to begin with because he doesn't have any powers he just his only job is to get people out of the way, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, that final fight. I mean, the problem with that is there's you're not really invested in it, are you? Like the destroyer armor is just a sort of big CGI thing that he has to blow up. And the idea and... that there is this kind of link back to Loki with the with like Thor is able to talk to the destroyer and that then it's almost as if Loki is controlling him. But that hasn't really been established. 
in the comics, the whole gimmick of the destroyer armor is it has to be powered by like an individual soul or whatever. Yeah. So you can't have the armor animated unless someone is is inhabiting it, sort of metaphysically. Does um, the film do a, jo- a good job of establishing that? Well, not really, because you don't feel when Thor is fighting the destroyer that he is fighting Loki in any sense. No. Like, not and at that's all. that's what that sequence needed to be was a showdown between Thor and Loki, really. Mm. Um, you know, on a thematic level, he had to defeat his brother and become the king. And yeah. really, really what he does is, is fight a big CGI thing and get his powers back. It's not... And so instead, what we get is kind of a half-executed fight down on Earth with the Destroyer, which is kind of Loki, kind of not, and then kind of watch it repeated with them actually going head-to-head. Um... Except when they're actually going head-to-head in Asgard, it's never really going to be that much of a fair fight. Um, However many tricks Loki pulls. I mean, and that's something we kind of see in the Avengers as well, that Loki can kind of pull these little tricks and do things here and there. But ultimately, Thor is strong and he's got this hammer. Um, You know, to the point where he can even destroy the bloody Rainbow Bridge. Um, Rainbow Bridge <laughs> is really cool, by the way. I love the design of that and the way that it has these oh, yeah, kind of pre- the pressure points on it as well, and all that stuff. Um, but I wonder whether there is there is a there is a third act of this movie where Thor learns his humility just in time and kind of stops something very small scale on Earth and get back to Asgard in time to stop Loki, and then maybe he fights with a Loki controlled destroyer up on Asgard, up on the Rainbow Bridge. But it doesn't. It doesn't work in those two little fragmented halves, and neither no. neither really pays off as a as a great action scene. And yeah, for me, my favorite action scene in the whole of this is the is the fight with the frost giants at the start. I like how we slowly get introduced to all the different elements of Mjolnir and what powers it has and what Thor can do with it. And I like that we get to see the different fighting styles of each of the different warriors and the. I like the way that. In that sequence, the the landscape, the icy landscape of what is the what is the ice world? What is the frost giants world called? <laughs> oh, you've got me. Jotunheim. Uh, Jotun, Jotunheim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which. Yeah, I, I I like all that stuff. It's inventive. So I don't think Kenneth Branagh. I think it would be easy to say, oh well, he's an actor's director. He can't do that stuff. I think that that sequence is interesting I mean, and my fun. My favorite thing good. about that sequence is when that giant. But, oh no! Hang on. Am I thinking of? No, you are the giant, the giant big like dog yeah, yeah, creature yeah. that chases yeah. after them. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just I momentarily had a like. Hang on a second. That's in Thor two, but it is also in Thor two. No. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's reprised in Thor two. Yeah. The the bit where it starts running under the ice and they're on top of it. Mm. Like it's a really yeah. really nice, interesting moment, and it's something visually interesting that you don't see in most action sequences. So. And again, character through action, because we are watching Thor, like we're watching his arrogance and his um, foolhardiness in kind of full effect and him not wanting to walk away from the fight, even as they're being surrounded. Yeah, there's there's loads of really good stuff in, in that opening action sequence. And it's, it's a shame that we don't get any of that uh, later in the film. I, I feel like it just it, it's something that it contributes to this film being it doing a job it being entertaining enough but 
there's a reason why Thor is no one's favourite Avenger. <laughs> you know? <laughs> is that fair? Yeah. yeah. Um, should we, I, I think we've covered a lot of the main stuff about the film. Is there any other things, James, that spring to mind that you'd particularly like to talk about or um, praise or criticise? Uh, I feel like I should praise the fact that Natalie Portman's character is a scientist and actually has stuff to do. Yeah. Like, it's something Marvel's love interests haven't entirely been great, like Peggy Carter aside. You know, it would have been easy to do Jane Foster as just what she was in the comics, which was a fairly unimportant nurse character. Like, they've kind of moved her on with the times, but... Again, if you go back to that original setup, she was a standard superhero girlfriend, like not much to her. Yeah, all that science stuff works fairly effectively again to kind of establish this as two worlds that can coexist alongside each other. That there is kind of this basis that we have these characters who are watching the stars and the constellations and, um, you know, it is part of a real kind of um, astronomy. It's not it's not just all kind of make-believe nonsense. Um, and yeah, I think making Portman's character a scientist and having that, that stuff tracking through the movie um, is strong. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I I feel like we should draw attention to Idris Elba's Heimdall. Um, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> who at this point has become um, a pretty big star. Um, in fact, in this film we have... Um, what we are being led to believe are the two main contenders for James Bond in uh, Hiddleston and Elba. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure Marvel are kicking themselves that they cast Idris Elba as Heimdall and didn't cast him and didn't wait and cast him as something much bigger. Because, um, I mean, it's one of those situations, it's a little bit like, um, I guess it's like Halle Berry in the X-Men, although Storm should have been a big deal from the start. But... Um, you kind of feel like there's, you know, Idris Elba is the Thor character who shows up in um, Age of Ultron in that sequence, and you get you get the impression that maybe he might be important in Ragnarok as well, uh, just because you've got Idris Elba, and let's please not in- underuse him. Yeah, he is the he's the sort of character who, as well, like his gimmick is well established enough that you could chuck him in any Marvel film, and it would sort of. It would work on some level. He almost seems to me like the glimpses that I've seen of the character of the Watcher in the comics. I, that I was literally Heimdall, about to say. Yeah, Heimdall could be that kind of... He could he be could the Marvel kind of, Cinematic Universe Watcher in that when he turns up and says, I've seen this thing and it's bad, you believe him because you've seen him say that before and it came true. You know, make him Space Nick Fury. Yeah. You know, have, have him hopping around the intergalactic movies, stick him in Captain Marvel, stick him in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, because you've got Idris freaking Elba. <laughs> the character mm-hmm. works. The character does work as well, so I don't know why you wouldn't make more of him. Yeah, I, like, I would love to see more of him. What do you think of The Warriors 3 and Lady Sif? I don't know, it's strange. They're kind of a constant presence throughout the entire film, but I never really feel like they make a huge impact like when i look back at the mcu um fandral i remember more in the sequel because they changed the actor um (laughs) uh ray stevenson is kind of the one i remember because he's ray stevenson and lady sith um i um i kind of felt like she had more impact on agents of shield than she did on in either of the thor movies um 
And then Hogan kind of, he doesn't get to do anything at all, really. I mean, like, he doesn't even really have a thing. Like, all the rest of them have a thing. Um, and Hogan doesn't. Yeah, Hogan has a thing. He's, like, space Japanese. But uh, hey, hey, do you agree with that? Is there any? Is there anything more they could have done with those characters? <clears throat> could they have done more with them? Uh, not really, because as portrayed in the film, like their Thor sort of buddies. Again, I think their characters you could spin off and do more with if you wanted to. Like, I think I feel like they're sufficiently well drawn, or at least Sif is, and possibly Hogan. <laughs> not Hogan. Uh, Fandral. Like yeah, they're the kind of characters that I feel could like Joss Whedon could do well with on a like Firefly type show, like Joss Whedon's Lady Sif and the Warriors Three. Um, yeah, like you, you know, could, ten, you ten imagine, episodes on Fox next summer. Yeah, you can imagine them spinning out because you know they're well drawn, if not well developed. I mean, it's interesting that they're not bringing Sif back for Ragnarok. Because... Um, I don't know whether that is definitely the case. Um, she was not on the original cast list, but she tweeted something about, um, okay. you know, maybe not. She yeah. might be back. There, there were there were other people that were not on that cast list. I think that was kind of like the featured cast. I would imagine if she is back for Ragnarok, though, it won't be in much more than a kind of... I, I I I imagine that that film is going to be a little bit on Asgard at the start and then a little bit on Asgard at the end, and that might be where we see those kind of familiar characters, but not in the middle because the middle is going to be Thor and <clears throat> Hulk, and that when we are doing Asgard stuff, it's probably going to be Loki and Kate Blanchett and uh, yeah, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, they sort of established Sif as a kind of alternate love interest for Thor. Yeah, and... which is. Which is weird, because it doesn't really track. Yeah, well, it just it feels like she would be a more interesting foil for him than Natalie Portman. Because him and Natalie Portman have that, like, romantic element. They have that, like, romantic, classical interplay. Like, mm. you know, however well it's portrayed. God, but... what a boring couple they would be, though, James. What, Sif and Thor? Yeah, what would they talk about? <laughs> Well, you've got really big muscles. So do you. Yeah. <laughs> they just go straight to fucking. It's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think she would be more formidable and, you know, she would challenge Thor more than Natalie Portman or Jane Foster, sorry, would. Like, I feel like there's a more interesting sort of more adult storyline. Uh, not adult in the nudity sense, but in the complexity of it. Yeah, like less, I, less fairy tale. I, I think that is what we're going to get with Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok. I think Valkyrie is going to be introduced as the new kind of Thor love interest going forward. Maybe in a potential kind of someone take over this franchise once Chris Hemsworth uh, initially, uh, eventually hangs up the hammer. I think she's going to be she's going to end up being a much more important character in that film and in the uh, MCU going forward. Um, Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, I, I don't think, I mean, Jamie Alexander has obviously, she's, um, she has a hit TV show now, so that plays into things. But also, I just don't feel like that character has ever really worked. And I like her kind of at moments here, uh, here and there in this movie. Um, I, I actually really love the kind of the introduction of Thor in the throne room, kind of doing his whole flipping the hammer and playing to the crowd. And you see, 
Lady Sif and Frigga both go, oh, please. You know, roll their <laughs> eyes, but kind of grin as well because he does... It's it's a great way of showing this character is kind of like everyone kind of... They know he's a bit of a buffoon, but they can't help but be drawn to him. In fact, he's, he's, he's probably brilliant as kind of like a modern-day politician in that regard. Um, if, on, <laughs> if, on, if only our politicians could go off and learn humility. Maybe that's what Boris is doing. He'll be back in, he'll be back in a few years and he'll finally be able to lift his uh, hammer. Um, <laughs> he's had no problem lifting his hammer. If anything, that's been the problem. Yes. Um but yeah, and and I think we should probably finish this off on Chris Hemsworth, um, because yes, it, it's it's not a role that demands an awful lot. Um, I actually think casting an Aussie in this role is a great idea. There is, um, sorry to our Australian listeners, this is kind of a backhanded compliment, but there is kind of an, an inherent arrogance to the Australian that works for early Thor here. He has that swagger, he has that confidence in himself. Um, um, and Chris Hemsworth's really great at that. He obviously has the physique. Um, I think the accent as well, the fact that he's doing this, he is obviously going for a British accent. It's not quite there when, you know, when he's opposite Hiddleston and, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins kind of... It's kind of... Welsh, it's easy to forgive kind of. Yeah, well, it's kind of faux British. And I think that's fine because this is Asgard. It's not Britain. Um, and it does kind of lend this slightly otherworldliness to him whilst also selling him as this kind of, um, uh, yeah, Nordic god, Asgardian king, Shakespearean kind of character. Um, the one thing I do wonder is whether Chris Hemsworth hasn't been allowed to have that much fun with the character since, that because he's learnt this humility in this, in the first two acts of this movie, that... He, he hasn't really been allowed to get that full swagger back. He kind of has to play second fiddle in the Avengers films. He doesn't get the amount of comedy lines that, you know, even in Captain America and Hulk get, I don't think. He, and he's always off in, the, he's off in these little side missions doing these other things. And I don't know. I wonder whether a good arc for Thor <laughs> Ragnarok would be allowing him to get his swagger back himself. And not just putting Thor there as the character who other characters steal scenes around. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I know what you mean. Like he he gets those kind of odd moments of comedy, but there he doesn't get like he's not as brash or anything. It's not as showy. As yeah. Whereas the first two acts before. of this film, he is he is you know he is getting to do all that kind of stuff. Him him doing the kind of slapstick physical comedy in the um in the hospital and then getting knocked down by the car um slamming his coffee cup down into the ground um drinking with Selvig in the bar you know all of that stuff is Chris Hemsworth doing really good comedy dust, comedy stuff with the character and it would be great if he got to do that elsewhere as well yeah i or can just got to do it again <laughs> i can agree with that okay so that was thor and james uh, what comic book are you going to be recommending I read in the next week based on the movie? The first book I'm going to recommend you is one that I know Seb would have told you to read had he been on this episode. Um, it is probably the Thor comic that most nails the tone of the film in doing that kind of fish-out-of-water romance, like, clash between Asgardian and, and human culture. It's Thor, The Mighty Avenger by Roger Langridge and Chris Samney. 
and volume one of that okay. collects four issues i think there are eight in total but yeah it's like it's this really sort of cute little i think it might be an all ages story technically but it's one of those like really well realized and accessible versions of the character that just sort of exists outside any specific continuity. But yeah, it, it most resembles the movie, so that's what makes it a good companion piece to this. Fantastic. And so that's that's kind of the Sebi recommendation. Yeah, what Seb, is the ja- Seb loves What's the Jamesy recommendation? <laughs> uh, so I was toying with giving you some 60s Thor to read, but I think 60s Thor... Some Donald Thor, Blake. Yeah, I mean, I think 60s Thor is only really interesting as a kind of footnote at this point, because it's kind of... I mean, it wasn't even Stan Lee writing it. It was Larry. It was Stan Lee plotting it, maybe, and Larry Lieber writing it, who was Stan Lee's brother. <laughs> right. Like, it was a, you know, 60s Thor is by no means the definitive version of the character. But one thing, now, me and Seb used to have a podcast called Alternate Cover, where we talked about comics, and one of the running jokes for that was that every episode we would find something negative to say about J. Michael Straczynski. <laughs> now, in Sc- fairness... Screenwriter of this movie. Yeah. In fairness, J. Michael Straczynski's Thor run, uh, which was from, uh, must be getting on for 10 years ago now, uh, was actually really good. And it probably would have been even better had he actually finished it. But, (laughs) (laughs) so that's my one negative thing about J. Michael Straczynski. Um, Yeah, the Thor story is Thor Volume 3. It's called, the the first collection is called Asgard Reborn. And it picks up with... The cycle of Ragnarok has just completed and all the gods have disappeared and it it picks up with the sort of reincarnation of Thor and the Asgardians. Um, So it's kind of a... It's like a solid entry point to the character. Like, you don't feel the weight of 50 years of Marvel stories before it. So basically, it's it's essentially a reboot of Thor the character and it kind of... Chronologically, it sits just after Civil War the original Civil War, when, like, during which Thor didn't even exist. Like, have you read the stuff with Robot Thor? Or Cyborg Thor? Ha- have I read it? Yeah, on your Civil Civil War read-through, the bit where they introduced the Thor clone. Um, I didn't get very far through my Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a bit in Civil War where they introduce the Thor clone because the real Thor has, has died in Ragnarok and doesn't exist Anymore. Right, and this this volume reintroduces Thor to the Marvel universe after a period of him not existing, essentially. Okay, is this the kind of the what everyone always talks about as like Thor got kind of retired from comics for a few years, yeah, which doesn't is... often happen, but it kind of happened by luck more than design. Yeah, well, it was more they got to the end of a story and just thought, well, no one's got a good idea for a Thor comic. Let's give it a rest for a while until we've got the right concept, and this is the right concept. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, and I like I, despite not being a big fan of J. Michael Straczynski, I was really into this run. Like it has the Shakespearean vibe, uh, leans heavily on the mythology, and it it does something. It's going to confuse you because it reintroduces Donald Blake. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> it it undoes the retcon to some extent. Amazing. But yeah, like it collects the first six issues in in a in a book called asgard reborn and i enjoyed it and i think you'll probably like it too fantastic um i'm looking forward to this i'd say mostly because i you know i've only started reading comics in the past year or so and so outside of your recommendations the only comics marvel comics anyway that i've read are more uh, are the kind of current stuff so i read a little bit of 
Um, I've read a little bit of the current Thor, the Jane Foster Thor, um, and but the only real you know, uh, exposure I've had to kind of the classic Odinson character of uh, version of the character um, was in the Thor's Secret Wars series, which was like four issues and wasn't really properly that character anyway in any kind of like normal recognizable sense. Um, so I don't really feel like I, I really know what he's like on the page at all. So it will be nice to read two comics this week that are both about about that character who I have watched in um, four movies now. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Thor the Mighty Avenger is I think that one came after the movie or certainly very close to the movie and is this quite influenced by it. Whereas the Straczynski version is more how Thor was before the movies. So maybe a bit more humorless, perhaps. There are some interesting differences, I think, in the approaches that that yours you'll probably see the influence of the movie having come out between them. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Well, um, I'll look forward to reading those this week, um, and we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And listeners, you might be thinking, well, how are they going to do the pitch? There's only one person for Joe to ask the question to. Um, so what we're going to do this week is James is going to answer the pitch, but then I'm also going to do my own pitch, but I'm not going to judge that because that would be unfair. Um, and so we'll get Seb to, when he listens to the podcast, decide a winner (laughs) and Seb on the next episode can declare who won the pitch. Maybe he'll tweet it out as well. Um, you know, I was, when you told me what the pitch was, I was looking at this going like, I wonder how Joe will find a way to make me lose this. (laughs) That's how he did it. Well, getting Seb to decide. <laughs> yeah. My point will not cause count towards Seb, though. It will just, it will be a, a point for me. And I've awarded myself points in the past. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's fine. Um, also, I came up with the question, so hopefully my answer will be better. <laughs> um, but this week, the pitch is, um, it's to do with Matt Damon. Because Matt Damon, who is... Um, He's about to be Jason Bourne again, and um, he was being asked if he would like to Jason Bourne again is the Christian version. (laughs) Um, But he got asked if he'd like to play a superhero now that his buddy Ben Affleck was playing um, Batman, and he said that he would love to as long as Ben Affleck was the as long as Ben Affleck was the director. So I want to know, James, is if Matt Damon is going to play a superhero for Ben Affleck, who should he play? I mean, like, if I'd known Seb was judging this, I might have chosen a different answer. (laughs) But, like, the thing that always strikes me about Matt Damon is he's a fantastic comedian. He doesn't get to do comedy nearly as much as he should. Yeah, especially when you see him on stuff like 30 Rock or doing his Jimmy Kimmel skits and stuff like that. Or just all the way through The Martian. Yeah, exactly. So, my pitch for Matt Damon would be a Wonder Man film wherein he plays like a washed up actor so that they can sort of fill it with sort of self-referential gags. And I know technically Nathan Fillion has taken that role, but if if you're going to do a blockbuster film by Ben Affleck, like tying into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you would not have Nathan Fillion in the lead role. So I'm going to make the executive decision to recast Simon Williams as okay. Matt Damon. Okay, so I've I've thought a little bit more what could happen in reality here because <laughs> if Ben Affleck is going to be the director of a superhero movie, 
It's going to be the Batman movie, right? It's Ben Affleck is going to direct that Batman movie or maybe a Justice League movie. But I'm saying either you can do this in the first Batman movie, you can do it in one of the sequels. Um, and again, I'm I'm on board with you. I think Matt Damon can be very funny. Um, but perhaps the funniest depiction of Matt Damon was in Team America where he was played by a puppet. So what I'm thinking is that Matt Damon embraces that history and joins the cast of Batman as Scarface and does the little ventriloquist <laughs> dummy routine, right, in a Batman movie. So you don't have to pay Matt Damon the big bucks to turn up. He comes, you know, the little dummy looks like Matt Damon. In fact, just bring in the puppet from Team America. Matt Damon voices it. Jobs are good in. Matt Damon as Scarface. See, this is almost exactly designed to appeal to Seb's, <laughs> Seb's sensibilities. I feel if Seb has any honour, he will give me the points just for how, how nakedly you were aiming that directly at winning. Uh, well, that's what happens when you make the rules, James. <laughs> you cater them towards yourself. Uh. It's all right. I don't care about winning. Taking part is what counts for me. <laughs> Seb cares about winning. <laughs> And he will understand that you will have to make the decision, you know, fairly and pick the better answer, which was mine. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM or your podcast app of choice. And you can head over to Patreon where you can support us at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Uh, Patreon subscribers are currently voting on what our... Um, commentary is going to be um seb hasn't revealed uh what what the actual voting figures are on that one but i'm aware that at the moment the top two films are separated by one vote so um we're still not sure what that's going to be but that will hopefully be coming along later this year once we've got a definitive winner you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs, four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. What are the odds? Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Spider-Man 2. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.